Good evening, everybody. It's time to begin our service this evening. Uh, tonight, I wasn't able to get the projector working. Software doesn't like me, apparently. Uh, David couldn't get it going either, so we're going to go with our songbooks tonight. Um, I still have us streaming, but all they can see is me instead of the songs. And I've got to do the sound up here as well. So tonight, let's we'll have one song, and then Chris will have our announcements. Uh, three more songs, and then David will have our lesson this evening. First song tonight is number 892. You'll grab a songbook and turn there. 892. The Steadfast Love of the Lord. We will sing this two times through. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to end. Good evening. Uh, we've got several announcements you need to be aware of. This Sunday starts our new directory pictures and information, so if you need uh, to update that information, uh, we'll have that available for you uh, at that time for your phone numbers and addresses, updates, uh, and start taking pictures this Sunday uh, through Wednesday, maybe. Uh, but it'll happen in the conference room right, right over there. Um, there'll be a teen devotional following evening services on Sunday night at Dave and Mandy's. Guys bring snacks and girls bring drinks. Uh, the Stepping Stones nuts are here. Uh, so if you are interested in uh, those, uh, be aware of that. All sales um, go to uh, OVU in support of uh, Christian education. Continue to remember the Blake family and the passing of Eric. His memorial service will be Saturday at Hall's. The visitation is from 1 to 2 with the funeral at 2. Uh, also continue to remember the Thompson family uh, and the Jones family at their recent losses, uh, as well as the Lawson family. Uh, if you weren't uh, already aware, uh, Greg Lawson, JB, and Wanda's son passed away this, this week, just a couple days ago. So keep them in, in your uh, prayers as well. Uh, Tanya Ward continues to recover. Uh, Rick Keister is recovering from COVID. Things are going well with him so far. Things look good. Um, 
Mike's mom, Bonnie Huron, is now home as well. Uh, Kelly Williams is beginning radiation this week. And just continue to keep her and Rusty, uh, Donnie Hennig, Diane Foss, and so many others that are undergoing cancer treatments at this time in your prayers. Be sure to pick up a bulletin so you're aware of all the things that are going on and all the folks you need to be praying for. Tonight, uh, Dave has the Devo and Evan Williams has the closing prayer. I'll begin us with an opening prayer and then we'll get back into our worship. Father, we are grateful that you love us. We're thankful to be called your children, Father. We pray tonight as we lift our voices and songs to you, Father, that our hearts will overflow in, in praise and worship, Father, to you, the one who is worthy of our worship, the creator of God. We're humbled to be in relationship with you, Father. We have so many on our hearts tonight that are struggling, that are hurting. We pray that you intercede on their behalf, Father, especially the ones that have lost loved ones, uh, for Mildred's family and for um, the Blake family and for the Thompson family and for the Lawson family, Father, we're, we're heartbroken at their losses and we pray that you'll watch over them, bring peace and healing to their hearts, Father. We pray for all the ones who are undergoing uh, cancer treatments at this time, especially for, for Rusty and for Kelly. We pray that you'll just watch over them, Father, and continue to give them strength, give them endurance, help the radiation and the chemos to, to do what they're intended to do father we pray that you'll just watch over everyone uh, in that situation we pray that you'll intercede on the behalf of all the ones we've mentioned tonight and the ones that that we're not aware of that are hurting father we pray that you'll just continue to strengthen all of us as we try to live in a world that is uh, adverse to you father we pray that we can be salt and light as as you called us to be father help us to be preserving factors in this world we pray that you'll encourage us, lift us up, give us strength as we continue to do your work, Father. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our next song this evening is number 684. 684. This world is not my home. Sing all three verses. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the Just up in glory land, we'll live 
Our next song is number 971. 971, Restore My Soul. Do all three verses of it as well. last song before the lesson this evening. It's number 627. 627. The Glory Land Way. Again, all three verses. If you would, let's stand for this song, please. I see you, Jerry. I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> Even though you came in late. <laughs>
please be seated. Our song of invitation this evening is number 761. If you'd mark that now, 761, where he leads, I'll follow. Good evening, church family. Hope everybody's doing all right today. The uh, question I want to start off with this evening is, what was your favorite love song as a teenager? What was your favorite love song as a teenager? Mine and uh, Mandy's, um, well, let me go to the story. Yeah. Um, I used to work for a company called, my first teenage job was uh, worked for a record company called Record Bar. I think up north they were more popular as tracks or turtles. But I used to work for a record company as a kid, and Mandy came in one day looking for a CD. And she took one look at me and fell in love. <laughs> and, uh, but she was asking for uh, the Mr. Big CD, uh, To Be With You, was the name of the song she was looking for. So that was probably, I'm dating myself because that was, that was a long time ago, but... Uh, but I guess that was probably our first love song that we had as, as, as teenagers. You know, I, I did some research on the Internet, and I looked up the top eight most popular love songs. And um, number one was Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers. Number two was You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman by Aretha Franklin. Number three, Can't Help Falling in Love by Elvis Presley. Faithfully by Journey, Endless Love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, All of Me by John Legend, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, and At Last by Etta James. Now, I'll give you a moment to sing those songs in your head for, you know, so you can... Uh... But isn't it funny the way... We remember love songs. You know, when we were reminded of them, as I was even going through that list, you're reminded of those love songs, and, and it strikes up some kind of feeling in our brains. And it, it remembers an emotion that we went through. It went through an emotion of process that, we, that you went through. And it triggers an emotion inside of us. And that emotion is love. So when in your life was the first time you fell in love? <laughs> I thought I heard someone say never, but... Uh, <laughs> but um, when's the first time you ever fell in love? Maybe it was when you got married. Maybe that was the first time, you know, that you really felt that loving feeling. You know the, the the you know the full emotion of love, or maybe it's when you're when you and your spouse are holding each other tightly, and you feel that emotion of love, or maybe it's when you're surrounded like something happened in your life, and you're surrounded by a group of people, and you feel loved by that group of people, or maybe it's the first time you got a dog happens 
Some people, yeah, sometimes that's the best love. You know, I'm not a cat person, so, I, you know, but maybe when you get a cat. But when was the first time in your life you felt the most love in your life? If you will, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me tell you the reason why Paul is writing this letter to the 1 Corinthian church here is because he wanted to correct some things he saw. Some things that he viewed that the 1 Corinthian church was doing wrong. So he writes the letter to this church urging them to be united in their belief and in their doctrine. So starting in verse 1, 1 through 3, it reads, If I speak in the tongues of men or of the angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, it says, I, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, he talks about spiritual gifts in, in verse 2. Now, we're not going to center. We, we read about the spiritual gifts in a previous chapter, in chapter 12, 8 through 10. Now, I'm not going to go through those because that's another lesson, and I want us to have time for Bible class this evening. But during that time, spiritual gifts were necessary. They were necessary because they didn't have the New Testament yet. So they needed a way to interpret the um, the spiritual gifts that they were given. So, but let me, that was necessary then, but is not necessary now. Let me repeat that. Those spiritual gifts are not necessary now. The reason why they are not necessary now is because we have God's Word, because we have the Bible. So, Paul here, and he's pointing out in verse 1 through 3. If I come up to you and, and speak with eloquence, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm like a squeaky gate that needs oil. If I speak with the power of God, revealing all the mysteries in God's word, making it everything plain as day, and if I say to a mountain jump, and that mountain jumps, but I don't have love, I, I'm nothing. If I give everything that I have, everything I own, to the poor, even if I'm burnt at the stake as a martyr, but I don't have love, I've gotten nowhere in my life. So no matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, 
I am bankrupt without love. So I ask you this evening, what have you done that has become a substitute for loving others? Maybe it's selfish love. Maybe you say that you're too busy to love others, that you let other priorities get in your way. Or maybe you say, I, I really don't want to be in a relationship or, or love that person because I don't like the way they dress or the way they talk. Or maybe you've gotten hurt and it's rooted deep inside of you and every single time you feel like loving somebody it reminds you of that pain and that hurt that you went through. But what has gotten in your way of loving others in your life? Let's continue reading what God's word says here. In verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoice with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. What Paul here is saying is that love, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than yourself. Love doesn't want us, love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. Love doesn't force itself on others. Love doesn't say it's always me first. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Love doesn't score each other's sins. Love puts up with anything and everything. It trusts in God. And it keeps going to the very end. Love never dies. You know, I could sit there and give a great sermon this evening that could inspire you. That will fade away. But love doesn't. Love is forever. Now sometimes in society, we see love in a wrong way. Sometimes we see 
And we get love confused with lust. Unlike lust, God's kind of love is directed outward towards others. God's love is not directed inward. It is not selfish. It is truly unselfish. What Paul is saying here is that this kind of love is something that you feel naturally. It's possible for us to always practice this love. Now, for some of us, it may be like boiling a frog. I don't know if you know how to boil a frog or not. But I learned this myself. I didn't know how to boil a frog either because I never boiled one, or why would I? But when you boil a frog, you put a live frog in a pot of boiling water, and you keep it cold, and you slowly turn up the heat on it. And the frog's body gets used to the temperature, and eventually, as the water boils, the frog doesn't realize he's dying. Sometimes when it comes to love, we have to take it slow, like a bold frog. I know it's a horrible way to describe it, but I thought it was really interesting. <laughs> but we, you know, you know, in order for us to love, in my opinion, is that the best way for us to develop the ability to love others is to show God's love. First, by listening. God gave us two ears and one mouth. He found, God found it more important that we listen more than we speak. God's love is generous. God's love is encouraging. God's love shows acts of kindness to others. And God's love is always praying for one another. When you look back at verse 8 through 10, we see that on how love helped the church grow. Because God's love never gave up. Love cares more for others than the self. A point is this. When you love the way God intended us for us to love, and we love unselfishly, we see Jesus, and we see Jesus face to face. Now maybe you're here among us, and you've lost that love and feeling and you need the prayers of the congregation, we'd be more than happy to pray for you. Or maybe you're not a Christian and you want to be baptized. We have everything ready. Please come forward as we stand and sing.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and for all you've given us, and thank you for letting us come together and learn more about your word, and thank you for Dave and his lesson, and let's apply it to our everyday lives to bring others closer to you. Be with the sick and watch over them. Most importantly, thank you for your son dying on the cross to take away our sins. Christ, and I pray. Amen.
What I learned during David's lesson is I know a lot of old songs, and uh, I'm going to try to put Kelly in a pot of hot water tonight. <laughs> All right. So Rick has still obviously got COVID. I asked me to fill in, and uh, so here we are. Um, and I was trying to think what was the most helpful thing for me as I have matured inside of Christ. What is the most helpful thing? Uh, that helps me put all the pieces together, at least the pieces that I put together. What's the biggest thing that's most helpful for me? The story, like the overall story of Scripture. Just being able to say, oh, this happened here, and then this happened, and this happened, and then th but this happened here. If you can put all the pieces together and kind of see it as one big story, then you can. it starts coming together. It starts coming to life in your head. So I wanted to walk you through it tonight. <laughs> So we're going to cover at least a thousand years of biblical history, uh, maybe 1,500 or so, depending on where we want to start. Um, so where do we want to start? Do we want to start with Adam and Eve? Do we want to start with the divided kingdom? Can anybody walk me from Adam and Eve to the divided kingdom? Not everybody at once. Bless the chalkboard. All right, so let's start with Adam and Eve, maybe. Let me just go really quickly through here. This is pretty familiar territory for most of you. So you got Adam and Eve, then what? Who would be the next big player? Absolutely. So I'm hopeful that maybe if we get the whole story, the overarching story, some of these stuff will start making more sense for us. So if you, start, if you were to start with Adam and Eve, who's the next big person in Scripture that you run across? Do I? Satan in the garden, right? And then you've got the fall, and then what? Cain and Abel. I'll, I'll tell you what, I, I've kind of developed some shorthand in my head. Uh, I'll go from Adam and Eve to Noah. And I, I'm just recognized that all those other things are going in between Cain and, Cain and Noah. And then you go from Noah to... I go from Noah to Abraham. I don't know about you guys, but that's just kind of what I do. And I've got a shorthand in my head. Like, oh, there's some players that happen in between Noah and Abraham, obviously. But just for continuity's sake, for big picture's sake, I go from Noah to Abraham. Now, we've been trying to do some of these stories um, just because we don't know our Old Testament very well. How many of you guys could just rattle off chronological history of the New Testament? Most of us, right? Jesus, then you got Peter, Paul, the apostles, day of Pentecost, and you've got the letters and Revelation, and then here we are. And so it covers a significantly shorter period of time, but we're also a lot more familiar with it. We're not very familiar with the Old Testament history. Is it important? Absolutely. You get 2,000 years worth of God in the Old Testament. If you don't know your Old Testament, you don't know your New Testament like you should. Blanket statement, that's true. We don't know our Old Testament like we should. We're not as well acquainted with it like we ought to be. And so we struggle when we come to the New Testament to understand everything or even a lot of the things that he wants us to understand from the New Testament simply because we don't get the Old Testament like we should. So I've been trying to go through some of this Old Testament stuff. Um, I guess my mind, as we've been working through Hebrews, has been focused on Old Testament stuff as well because he is so fixated on the Old Testament and what it means to us as he brings it into the New Testament for us. Um, 
And so on Sunday nights, we've been talking about some of these Old Testament stories and what they mean to us and how they apply to us, because they do. I mean, especially you get into the prophets. We'll, we'll talk about them tonight. And it's like we're living, they're living in our time period, and we could just take some of their prophecies and go out to Huntington, and, and they would be so applicable, so spot on. But those are short snapshots, I guess. They're, they're very, uh, the Sunday night lessons and intended to be um, walks into uh, that person's world. But you don't get a bird's eye view of the Old Testament like that, do you? You get individual stories which are necessary, and we need to be able to apply those things, and that's true. But we also need a bird's eye view of all of Scripture, right? That makes sense. If we're going to understand who he is, what, what he wants out of us, we got to have a bird's eye view of Scripture. The Old Testament is important. Um, I think a lot of times we just kind of skip over it because, oh, it's just history. And he says in Galatians that it's a schoolmaster. You remember this? The old King James says it's a schoolmaster bringing us to Christ. The better you know the Old Testament, the more you're going to appreciate Christ. And so I like the Old Testament. I don't know if it's the stories or because I feel like it's, not as appreciated as it should be, but I enjoy the Old Testament. So this is kind of uh, what I think is important. So go from Noah to Abraham. Who's next in the, in the we're just looking big picture. I, I do small picture here. I go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And these three are important. Um, historically speaking in the Old Testament, they're known as the patriarchs. And so you're going to hear people talk about them. In fact, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout the whole Testament. And so in my head, I go from Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, this, this son, grandson, and great-grandson, or grandson. Um, after, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where do you go? You got Joseph coming up. And then you got what? Joseph and his brothers. Next big player is? Moses, and then the next big players, you, Joshua. You go from Moses, who led Israel in the wilderness, to Joshua, who led Israel into Canaan, right? What happens when they get into Canaan? They take over the land, everything's going rosy. Then what happens? Oh, they get a king. <laughs> but something happens, something even worse happens in between the time when they enter Canaan and they get a king. What's this dark spot? The Judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you've never read the book of Judges, go back and read the book of Judges tonight. It'll keep you awake. <laughs> There's some stories at the end of the book of Judges that will give you nightmares tonight. <laughs> it is a dark, dark period in Israel's history, but it's incredibly interesting. There's a lot, I mean a lot, we can learn from the, from the book of Judges. So it's coming up in our future, I would imagine, uh, for an in-depth study at some point. Uh, I just think it's so interesting. But anyhow, so you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and his brothers. Uh, you've got Moses, and then you've got the judges, right? Joshua, uh, and then after Joshua dies, the judges take over. And they, they rule Israel. Uh, there's 15 of them. Uh, you guys know the song? And then, yeah, and then Saul comes after. Uh, he's, the, he's the first king, right? So there's 15 judges, and then they, they, they cover this 400-year swatch of Israelite history. Uh, and then after the judges, the last judges, Samuel, great, great prophet Samuel. Nothing, nothing bad is ever said about the prophet Samuel. That's why we named Titus, his first name is Samuel. 
Nothing bad's ever, nothing negative even is ever said about Samuel. Um, but after Samuel comes, Saul and then the monarchy happens in Israel, right? So you've got, you got our boy Saul, then what? God takes the kingdom from Saul, hands it to David. Now what? Solomon. David rules for how many years? God's 40 years, right? How many of the years does Solomon rule for? 40, you're right. Uh, then what? Rehoboam. Rehoboam is not a good king, and so he's not going to get 40 years. He gets 17 years. We've talked about him recently. So what happens during Rehoboam's time? The split, right? And this introduces to us a very interesting section. Whoop of Israelite history called the Divided Kingdom. You've got the Northern Kingdom. Yep, there are ten of them. Um, they are referred to as Israel or as Ephraim throughout the Old Testament. Who's their first king? Jeroboam. Almost every time you hear this guy referenced in Scripture, he's Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. What did he do that made Israel sin? This is important. Yeah. So up here in, this is a, a city called Dan. It's at the northern end of their kingdom. And then the other one's Bethel. Those two cities are going to come in hand, are going to be important players uh, in throughout the rest of the northern nation's history. They are going to be in existence for 200 years. Um, a quick, easy way to remember this, David rules in 1000 B.C. 1,000 years before Jesus is born, David rules. He rules for 40 years. So in 960, that's not a 6, 960, Solomon, his son, takes over. And then in 920, after, I don't know why I'm doing that, 920, uh, his son, Rehoboam, takes over. So we've got some pretty solid dates here. Um, and so somewhere around 920, for the next 200 years, this northern nation is going to be a separate nation from the southern nation. Um, these guys, how are they referred to in Scripture? Do you know? Yeah, they're always referred to as Judah. They have two tribes. Oh, did that poorly, sorry. Um, they have two tribes, really two and a half tribes, I suppose. Um, they have the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, and also the Levites come back after they're kicked out. Um, the, the, the Levites didn't have um, specific lands in any of Israel, but they had cities dotted throughout all of Israel. Uh, and when Jeroboam didn't allow them to continue their service to Yahweh and was instituting this worship at these at these two um, city centers in, at Bethel and Dan, the Levites took tail and ran, and they ran back to Judah, ran back to Rehoboam, who was still not a good king, still immoral, still idolatrous, but he was instituting and maintaining uh, worship to Yahweh. He doesn't do it right, and his successors won't always do it right, uh, but they will maintain 
worship to Yahweh. Whereas these kings, there's going to be about 20, 22 of these kings. And you don't find a line uh, with these guys. Jeroboam's going to have a boy. His name, <laughs> he's got a couple of sons. Abijah is taken early on in his life. But the son that uh, will come after Jeroboam, I think his name is, um, uh, no, I think it's Nadab. Um, not the Nadab from Leviticus 10, which just indicates Jeroboam's relationship with God and what he thought was important. Why in the world would you name your son Nadab? If you're a good Jewish person, it'd be like for us, name your boy Benedict. <laughs> like, we just don't do that, right? Or Judas. Ugh. You don't want your son associated with those names. Why in the world he would name his boy Nadab is insightful into his, uh, what he thought was important. But there's going to be about 20, 22 of these kings in the northern nation. Every single one of these men will worship a false god, mostly this one here in Bethel and this one here in Dan um, that Jeroboam sets up. <clears throat> they are going to be idolatrous and immoral, all 20 to 22 of them. Um, and it's just it's it's whoever's strong enough to take the kingdom uh, here in this northern section. Now, what's so interesting happens here in 722. This nation falls. Who takes them? The Assyrians take this this northern nation uh, of Israel, and they're just gone. They're obliterated. We don't they they, they stopped being a people. The Jewish people you know today came from, from these people. These people are just gone. They were assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. Then what happens to the Assyrian Empire? They get assimilated by the Babylonians. Then the ba what happens to the Babylonians? They get assimilated into the Medes and Persian Empire. Uh, and then the Greek Empire comes in and they assimilate the whole thing, right? So that's what happened to these, these people. They just got assimilated. And, and they're just gone. The northern ten tribes just... Done away with. Some interesting stuff happens in between the time that this is founded, about 920 B.C. and 722 B.C., when this nation, this northern nation, is wiped off the planet. Elijah and Elisha are going to prophesy to this northern nation. Do you know the other two? There's only two other prophets that are going to prophesy to this northern nation. Elijah and Elisha didn't write anything. So interesting, right? Two of the major prophets that we know the most about didn't write a word. That's left for us to read. But who are the other two? Do you know? No, Jeremiah prophesies down here. No, Isaiah's down here. Hosea. Yes, Hosea. Hosea and Amos. Both these guys are contemporary. Um, they live at the same time. I don't know if they knew each other or not, but they prophesy to this northern nation. In fact, Amos is not even from the northern nation. Hosea is from the northern, from the northern set. He lives somewhere here. I don't remember exactly where. Uh, but Amos actually lives over here, right on the border. And he's going to come over to Bethel. Bethel means in Hebrew, house of God. And Amos is going to come into the house of God and say, this is not God's house. Are you kidding me? There's, there's somebody else other than Yahweh sitting on his throne over there. You put a, a golden calf on his throne. This isn't God's house. This is the house of iniquity. And so he calls it beth Aven, the house of iniquity, house of sin, um, not God's house. So Amos and Hosea prophesied during this time period uh, right before 722. What's going to happen in 722? 
They kill them all, right? They take them off to captivity. Hosea, his prophecy, do you know Hosea? His, he's got a couple of, uh, of children. He's got three children. And he names his children what's about to happen to the northern nation of Israel. One of them is called Not My People. That's not good. <laughs> One of them is called Not Mine. Uh, I forget what the other one's called. Cut off or discarded or something like that. But the Hosea's prophecy, uh, he marries this prostitute, right? Do you remember her, Gomer? And it's this, this insane picture that God's having acted out in front of all of Israel of his love for them and how they have treated him. Hosea is the image of God here. Gomer is the image of Israel. Hosea keeps on going back to her, keeps on loving her no matter what she does. And she goes back into her life of harlotry. He is forced to buy her back from that life. And at that point, Hosea, God lets Hosea, I suppose he let him in at the very beginning, but he's going to make a point of it when he, when he buys him back. He says, this is what I want to do to Israel. I would buy you back out of this condition that you put yourself in, but you just won't have it. You won't stay away from the other gods. You're playing the heart with them. And so you're not my people anymore. And he cuts them off. They're gone. During this time period, who, who, who did we say takes over the northern nation? Assyria. What's the capital city of Assyria? Do you know? Mm -mm. It's, that's Syria. So in scripture, there's two nations that sound very similar. Syria, which is the capital, is Damascus. And then Assyria, which is the capital, is Nineveh. Nineveh. You remember Nineveh, right? Prophet Jonah. Uh, Jonah's going to go to Nineveh, and he's going to preach condemnation. God is going to judge you if you don't uh, straighten up. And they do, right? Wonder of wonders, the incredible evil nation known as Assyria straightens up. Nineveh falls to its feet in, in humility before Yahweh, and they lead righteous lives for a short period of time. Nahum, the prophet we know as Nahum, uh, will come about 40 years after um, the, pro the prophecy that he's going to give us, that, that Nineveh is destroyed, happens about 40 years after the northern nation is destroyed by Nineveh. Jonah saw it coming. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to be a political commentator of his day to be like, oh, Assyria is going to be the world power, and we need to be really, really careful with them. And if God wants to destroy them, just go ahead and do that, Lord. You know, that'd be really great and get them out of our way. God doesn't see it like that. He saves them. But he saves them so that they can come and destroy the northern nation of Israel. He uses them like a hammer to condemn and punish this northern nation of Israel. Nahum says, you're not going to get out of scot-free either. You were just the, the, the instrument that God used to punish. You're going to be punished too because you didn't maintain the righteousness that you had. And so Nahum comes and he condemns Nineveh. And in fact, um, in 612 B.C., Nineveh is going to be destroyed um, by the Babylonians. And as they come in to take over this section of the world... Because Babylon, Babylon is going to rule this whole section of the world. It's not just, it's not just, they didn't just take over Israel, though that's where it intersects biblical history. They took over the known world at this point. And they took it over from Assyria, from our boys Assyria and Nineveh. 
Um, and so they're going to take over, they're going to destroy Assyria and assimilate all the peoples that Assyria had taken over. And so they do that. One of the peoples that they're going to do that to, remember this nation is now gone. So it's bye. Uh, so now we, we have to deal with this nation. What happens to them? Well, in 605, something happens that you're probably familiar with. Uh, our boy Daniel. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Daniel's a young man in Judah. He is the, he's the ruling, he's not the, the next king, but he's in the ruling family uh, of, of, uh, of, of Jerusalem. Uh, he's, in, he's part of David's descendants. The uh, Babylonians come in in 605 B.C. because the, the king of Judah refused to pay his taxes to the Babylonians. Uh, he thought that Israel would get out of this condition scot-free, and he was wrong. Um, could they have? Yes, God could have protected them. 100% God could have protected them from the Babylonians. The Babylonians were nothing in comparison to God, and he will show that clearly in the destruction of Babylon itself by the Medes and the Persians. But he doesn't because he's using the Babylonians as a hammer to Judah because Judah had also been immoral and idolatrous uh, for the last 250 years or so. Not as bad as the northern nation, in fact, they get an extra 120 years or 140 years or so, but they are also not living holy, devoted lives to God. So in 605 uh, B.C., um, Nebuchadnezzar's dad is going to come in, and he's going to take away some of the ruling class. Daniel, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, as well as a lot of other people. Yes, but they're not going to do it here. Uh, this is like a first law incursion. The, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dad comes in. He says, listen, y'all better stop messing around because I'm serious about this stuff. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> stop messing around because I'm serious about this stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take you down. And to show you that I'm serious, I'm going to take some hostages. I'm just going to take some, some people. He, take, he enslaves a good piece of the royal family, especially the young, good-looking kids. Um, so he does that in 605. And then in 586... It's the famous date you might want to lock in your head. That's when Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, again, they stop paying their taxes and they upstart little nation. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar is a brand new king at that time. His dad's died. And Nebuchadnezzar is ready to um, consolidate his kingdom and show everybody in the world who's boss. And he does it to perfection. Uh, and so in, in uh, 586 B.C., he's going to come and he's going to destroy Jerusalem, destroy uh, the temple and, and, and the walls. Um, Isaiah and Micah, if you're from, you know those two uh, prophets, they were the first uh, to, to uh, start prophesying. Uh, these guys prophesied somewhere around 5, uh, 750 B.C. Um, and so right around the time... Uh, just a little bit before this, uh, the northern nations destroyed uh, Isaiah and Micah are over here down in the southern nation. Isaiah is kind of like what Nathan was to David. He was the king's prophet. Um, and, but he serves that, that role for several kings. Um, but they're going to be the first ones to say, if you don't straighten up, you don't live righteous lives, the temple is not going to protect you. God's going to devastate this place. And Micah is the first one um, that, that brings that really to our attention in his prophecy. Um, about 100 years later, you're going to come in contact with some other guys you know. Jeremiah, right? 
uh, Ezekiel. Uh, Jeremiah is going to write the book of Lamentations. As 586 B.C. happens, as the Babylonians are destroying Jerusalem, uh, most scholars think that Jeremiah sits on top of a hill overlooking Jerusalem, uh, and he writes the book of Lamentations in his sorrow that God's city has been destroyed. Jeremiah is not going to go into captivity. He's going to go into Egypt and then later finds himself voluntarily, I suppose, in, in um, Babylon as a captive. Uh, Ezekiel goes into captivity. Um, interesting little tidbit here. Uh, probably one of the most overlooked books in the Old Testament, one of the most overlooked books in an overlooked section of the Bible is the book of Obadiah. Do you know what happens in Obadiah? This is just really interesting to me. Uh, you guys may be like, well, I hope Rick comes back next week. <laughs> Uh, to me Obadiah is just really really interesting so uh, when the Babylonians come in in 586 BC to destroy Jerusalem the Edomites who are the Edomites do you know these guys Esau's descendants right yeah Uh, so they become a nation known as Edom and they do not like the Israelites they are always at war with them throughout throughout the centuries they're a pretty big player themselves in this section of the world. But the Edomites come over from um, Seir, where their country is, and they come over and they help the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. And God condemns them because of that. And in fact, the book of Obadiah is their condemnation, their punishment. Uh, and he says uh, he's going to wipe them off the face of the planet. He's going to do to them what the, what the Assyrians did to the northern nation. And you know what happens? This is the funniest thing to me. Here's what happens when the Edomites come over to help the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. They took their entire army over to Jerusalem to help the Babylonians, which left their home fortress unguarded. And one of their, they're called the Nabataeans, one of their enemies, the Nabataeans, come over and they destroy the Edomite capital city, take it over, and that's where they live. And they kicked the Edomites out of their own country. And so the Edomites, because of... Um, time do I have to end? Is it 10 after now? Anybody know? 5 or 10 after? 15 after? 25 after? <laughs> okay, so um, they kick the Edomites out of their own home country, and because of what they have done for uh, the Babylonians, the Babylonians are appreciative, so they give them this little section right here um, and, uh, of Israelite territory, and that's where the Edomites come and they live. They live right there. Uh, you know them. You know some of them, at least, uh, from the New Testament. They're called the Idumeans in the New Testament. You, you familiar with the most, maybe, famous Idumean? King Herod. He's one of them. He's, he was an Edomite. Um, so, after uh, the Daniel happens, his prophecy happens here, about 70 years after Daniel um, you're going to come in contact with the Medes and the Persians, and their second king is a guy named Aharas. I can't even say his, his Greek name. Ahara, it's got too many H's and S's in there. Uh, but we know him by his Greek name, Xerxes. Xerxes. And this is Esther's husband. And so that's where her book falls into uh, the Old Testament canon. Um, eventually, after 
uh, Xerxes. He has a son named Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes uh, will give over the kingdom to Cyrus the Great, who is the next big player in this part of the world, and he is going to release the Jews and a lot of other peoples to go back to their nations and rebuild and do whatever they want, and he's going to fund it. And so he sends the Jews back, and they go back to Jerusalem right here uh, in the southern nation, and they start rebuilding the temple. In 516, they rebuild the temple, and it is a ugly, ugly sight in comparison to Solomon's temple. that had all this grandeur. Uh, the people, you go back through and you read uh, Haggai and Zechariah, they, they deal with this section of the history, and they're, they just talk about the people bemoaning the fact that this temple's like, it's like a trash can in comparison to the other one. But that happens in 516 B.C. And then um, right after that, you, you have about 70 years where they're not doing anything. They, they just kind of sit around. Uh, and there's the temple, but it's just out in the middle of the field. There's no walls around it. And so Nehemiah comes back, and he rebuilds the walls in just a matter of days. Uh, and then just a very short period of time after him, a guy named Ezra comes along. And he makes the people worthy to live inside the, tip, the, inside the city that's called by God's name. And that is the Old Testament, 45 to 50 minutes. <laughs> so you kind of, I don't know if you want to take this board with you or not, but you, you kind of hopefully maybe get a little bit better view of what the Old Testament looks like and, and, and kind of how it's all laid out. Um, maybe that will help your, help your study. Whenever I'm studying, I always use a map. So grab you a map if you're looking for these places and, and a Bible dictionary to find out the people and where they come from and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. They were God's word to his people, and they just refused to listen. Even, even this nation in the south that should have been God's people. The Davidic line um, follows all the way through, all the way through the exile. David's sons still come back, and they are still major players in the southern nation of Judah. In fact, he's got a son, great, 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 great grandson named Zerubbabel who's going to be integral in building the temple. Um, so yeah, these guys are they're God's mouthpieces, pleading with the people to come back, and the people just won't do it. Just won't do it. Stubborn. Stubborn and rebellious people. All right. I think I ran out of time. Thanks, guys. Hopefully next week Rick will be here and you don't have to go through history. <laughs>